would you believe, Aki, that I have been to so many uh, events with my Jewish friends here that uh, I've actually learned how to tikva by heart now? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get that on the radio. Come on. This is the Mideast Beast Podcast. I am your host, Molly Livingstone, here in Israel. On the line, we have an interview with Abud Dandanshi. Dandanshi. I cannot say it. It frustrates me to no end. He's a former Syrian <laughs> refugee. You're laughing at me. A former Syrian refugee who is now in Canada. It has been a long journey. It has been a journey filled with learning new things like, Abud, you used to not really like Israelis. Now you have a website thanking them. What's happening? Oh, well, thank you for having me, Mahdi. It's uh, It's been a while. So yeah, just a bit of a background. I am a uh, Syrian. As you mentioned, I'm a, a former Syrian uh, refugee. And I was I actually uh, was working in the Gulf when I moved back to Syria in 2010. Which was a great time to move back to Syria. Oh, when wow, the timing could have been perfect. Literally chemical I mean, warfare I was, uh, Yeah, well, I had spent years going working from country to country in the Gulf, and I just wanted to... Uh, I just wanted to take a break and just uh, bring a bit of stability into my life. So I uh, moved back to Syria. I got engaged. I was starting my mm. own business. And I bought a house in my home city of Homs. And, so this uh, is like the dream. This was, this you ran around the Gulf. You made wanted. money. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, at that point, you know, January 2011, life was looking great for me. You know, I was very optimistic about the future. Life had had, had never been, uh, been better. My timing, however... Could not have been worse. Mm. Uh, in March 2011, demonstrations started in Syria, and they spread to the rest of the country. And the city that uh, that I lived in, Homs, became known as the capital, the epicenter of the revolution. And the rest is history. Ugh. So, what happened to you? Well, I was actually giving reports to the BBC uh, for the first year, telling them what was going on, giving radio uh, interviews. Up until February 2012, when the uh, regime had decided they had had enough and they wanted to uh, subdue Homs. So they started off with an area called Baba Amr, which anybody who follows the history of the Syrian revolution during those early days would know that that was the, the center, the beating heart of the of the opposition to the regime back in those days. But to get to Baba Amr, they had to go through my neighborhood first, called Inshaat. It was a... Uh, upper middle class uh, area. It was one of the most desirable places to live in in, uh, in, in Homs. Uh, was it like the Beverly Hills? War zone. Just to get so an idea. So I wake up one February morning to the sound of shelling. And that was the first time the regime had ever used heavy, heavy weapons like tanks and, uh, and artillery. Uh, mm. Before they had just confined themselves to infantry, machine guns. And when that happens, you know, those kind of firefights are pretty much localized. You can you can avoid them. You know, you, you hear them. They make a loud, they make a loud racket. But uh, yeah. Yeah, but you, know, you can avoid them because they're pretty much localized uh, to, the, to the street or street corner. When they start using tanks and artillery, well, then, okay, obviously nobody's safe. Mm. So I was uh, trapped in my home for a week uh, while all the fighting was going around. And then uh, after a week, both sides agreed on a ceasefire and allowed people in my neighborhood to leave their homes. And that's what I did. Uh, I left. Uh, I went to my home village, spent a bit of time there. Things weren't much better uh, over there. There was a lot of fighting there. So I moved to the coastal town of uh, Tartus, which, uh, as anybody who follows the history of Syria, of Syria would know, is a pro-regime area. 
and I lived there for 18 months. And so I am one of the Syrians who has seen the conflict from both sides. You know, I've lived in opposition areas and I live in the loyalist areas as well. So I saw the effects of the conflict on, on both communities. Let me ask you a question because you say it like it is so normal and it's not. I mean, just saying like, oh, I just could avoid the machine guns. Like, oh, I heard some popping sounds, so I made a right instead of a left. I mean, is that really how it was? Were, were you not terrified? Could oh, you not see I, it? When I first heard gunfire, I was uh, during a demonstration that I wasn't attending. I was at home, but I knew that a demonstration was going out. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I heard gunfire where the demonstration was going on, and I was terrified. I was petrified. Those first few shots yeah. really terrified me, of course. But human beings, Just I don't know whether it. it's a curse or a benefit. We get used to anything. We adapt. We, mm-hmm. uh, we find ways to adapt and we find ways to get on with life if there's no other, no other choice. What other choice was there? Uh, if we were going to break down over every single gunshot that, that we heard, nobody would be functioning. As horrible as these kite attacks are from Gaza... I think that even the Israelis who have been subjected to it, I'm sure that they've found a way to to adapt, not to to adapt and not to accept. Yeah. There's a difference. Well, I think also, and you probably know this, and we're jumping ahead because just the fact that you're saying Israelis and sounding like supportive is totally not where you were at. But yes, Israelis use a sense of humor. So we talk about the kites that are flying over and literally starting fire after fire, I mean, really damaging areas. And then, you know, people like me will say, oh, we should have balloons of like dog poop, okay? <laughs> Fly back over and like literally flying bags of shit, just like take you, them you out. Guys were always, you guys were always inventive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Startup Nation. Okay, so wait a second. You <laughs> lose your house that you were so excited to buy in this like dream world of yours. Everything is coming together. Now everything's being ripped apart by the rebels and the regime and you move and it's still not enough. At what point are you like, all right, I got to get the hell out of here. It's over. Oh, well, after 18 months in Tartus, I mean, when you live in Tartus during those days, you live in a bubble. You live in 10 square kilometers. That's pretty much pretty safe. Uh, no checkpoints. Nobody was bothering me there. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody held it against me that I that I came from a opposition area. I had no complaints about uh, my treatment when I was in, uh, in, in Tartus. I was actually interviewed three times by the Bukhabarat, which is standard. When somebody moves from one province and spends a long time in another province, even before the war, they used to do that, check out on the person. Very paranoid. It could have, they were actually quite uh, understanding and friendly. I have, uh, I know that the Muhammad have a very bad reputation, and they do. They, they have a deservedly bad reputation. Me personally, though, things were fine for me in Tartus until the chemical weapons attacks uh, mm-hmm. that the regime unleashed in, uh, when was it? I think it was in August 2013. And uh, increasingly, though, people were getting conscripted and forced off the streets into the army. There would be times when people with the same names as wanted, people would be arrested and they wouldn't, the, the Bukhabarat wouldn't realize their mistake until months had uh, wow. had passed. You know, first of all, they beat up somebody, they torture him, and then they wonder, oh, why is this, what's this guy doing here? Why did we arrest him? That's pretty much standard practice for them. So, and wow. I just thought, you know what, sooner or later, they're just, they're just going to conscript me. They're just going to, something something bad, something bad is going to, going to happen. I personally may not have been affected yet, but a lot of people who were around me, uh, you know, who, who were living are in Tartus just disappearing, were, yeah. And in the end, I knew that sooner or later they were just going to shut the borders. You know, the Syrians wouldn't, wouldn't allow people to leave and the Lebanese wouldn't allow people to, to enter. So it would just be one big prison. And that's what happened eventually. So I just thought, you know what, these chemical weapons attacks, they've just happened. There's no limit to the guy's barbarity. He can get away with, you know, as the Bashar al-Assad, I mean, there's no limits to what he can do. The world is going to let him get away with whatever he wants. So just leave. What's the point of staying anymore? 
And uh, it was hard for me because once you leave Syria, you become a refugee. Yeah. And I didn't want to be a refugee in the Middle East. To be a refugee in the Middle East is uh, not the sort of life that anybody would go into unless they had no other choice. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, I didn't leave Tartus under fire, but I left because it was going to happen sooner or later. I was going to find my circumstances intolerable. So I just had to get out while, while, while I still could. And when you say when you say that you got out, like I'm trying to picture you, are you taking like 10 things on your back, whatever fits in? Are you walking? Are you driving? Is there an Uber? What's happening? Oh, an Uber. Yeah, that would be nice. No, actually, it's uh, up until then, you could still enter Lebanon regularly if uh, if you had a passport. And I had made a point of renewing my passport uh, a month before. Mm. Uh, so I had a bag packed for 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 months and months and months. So when you're a displaced person, you always have a bag packed and ready to go at any time. Any Syrian knows the kind of stuff that they always have to take with them. Their documents, their uh, their army uh, uh, service booklet, their ID card, and their passport if they if they if they have one. The deeds to the house that I no longer actually have anymore. Oh, you know, so some 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 clothes, you know. But no, actually, actually, I just uh, I just hired a driver who was from my home village. He makes the uh, drive to Lebanon uh, almost daily. Mm-hmm. So the checkpoints, they're familiar with him. They know him. It's safer to go with somebody who's familiar yep. with the route. And then the soldiers at the checkpoint, they're used to seeing uh, all the time. So, yeah, I hired this driver and we just drove to, to Lebanon. But uh, we had to go through, uh, I can't remember, maybe it was four or five checkpoints. And at each checkpoint, your ID is examined and they call up the uh, the Muhabarat to see if you're wanted. And, oh, my God, oh Mari, my God. that is like that would be like the longest five or six minutes in your life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how long can it take to get on a walkie-talkie and uh, read somebody's name and get a response back? <laughs> it, yeah. it could take a surprisingly surprise long time. Yeah, I bet you are so nervous. You always like feel oh, like you look guilty. You're like, oh, don't make eye contact. That'll make them nervous. But if you don't make eye contact, then you'll look shady. What do I do? I didn't know because the first checkpoint we came to was manned by the notorious Air Force Intelligence. And these guys looked like cannibals. They looked the Ooh. part of the big scary guys. And uh, they were familiar with the driver, but they weren't familiar with me. So uh, they took my ID. And one of the guys was standing by the car making crappy jokes, which I forced myself to this laugh is at what anyway. You, <laughs> you were you were trying to like, heckle the guy. Bad. Next. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I'm really going to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so eventually, yeah, they, uh, I mean, when, I mean, at each checkpoint as uh, as it comes back, and then, then they give you your, uh, your ID back and tell you, okay, go. You know, wow. continue, continue your, uh, continue your, 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 your trip. You feel a sense of relief until the next checkpoint, where the dread, you know, starts up all over again. Up until you get to the border. Once they stamped my passport, exit out of Syria, I felt like I was, you know, I felt like I was uh, coming out of a prison. I've never been wow. to prison in my life, but I, I, I'm guessing that's that's what it must have must have felt like. And then what yeah. though? But then where do you go? You're free, but only to an extent. Now you're well, in Lebanon. Lebanon was out of the, well, Lebanon was out of the question because Lebanon. I stayed with my grandmother for a couple of weeks in a in a place uh, north of Tripoli, and there was actually gunfights between the between the two communities over there in Lebanon. Uh, Syrians, there were being a lot of restrictions were being put on Syrians. Curfews. Some towns and villages won't allow Syrians to go out after 8 p.m. or they won't even allow them to live in the area. I mean, there was just no chance of settling in Lebanon. There was just wow. no opportunity. So Turkey was allowing Syrians to come in and get uh, residency permits. So after two weeks, I uh, took a plane and I uh, went up to Turkey. So where do you fall in love with Israel in this? Because as I understand it, 
you weren't the greatest fan, as probably most Syrians are not a fan of Israel in the way that most of the Middle East is not a fan of Israel, whether it's a personal decision, a brainwash decision, a news decision informed. For you, what was Israel and what became Israel to you? Oh, that's a good way to put it. That's a good question. Well, I wasn't really political before the events in Syria. Israel, I always uh, I always regarded it with ambivalence. I always regarded it as a country that was an adversary mm-hmm. of Syria. You know, they had took the Golan and they were occupying the Golan. This is ours, blah, 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 blah. You know, axis yeah. of resistance. Back in 2006, I think it was during the... Uh, Second Lebanon uh, during, War. The, during mm-hmm. the Lebanon War. I was actually rooting for Hezbollah. Oh, my God. I was actually rooting for Hezbollah. I was How actually, dare you? I was actually a fan of George Galloway back in uh, 2006. Really? I saw him as, you know, this Western guy, politician. He's standing up for Arabs. The thing is, Mali, here's what, here's what people need to understand. When you don't have a stake in politics, you can take any opinion whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And to me, the events then in the Middle East, I was an observer. They weren't really affecting me. I was living in Saudi Arabia at the time. I was working. I was living in Saudi, the Dubai, Qatar. You know, they weren't really affect, uh, affecting me. People like, for example, Palestinians and Israelis, these events have a direct effect on your lives every single day. Mm-hmm. When you're unaffected by by events, you can have whatever opinion, and it can be, be as uninformed or shallow as, as as you want. So yeah, in 2006, I was actually rooting for uh, for Hezbollah. I think that 99% of uh, Arabs uh, yeah, would have would have been right. So fast forward to 2011, and these same guys, Hezbollah, mm-hmm. are the reason that I became a refugee. Right. They were in there in Syria. They came specifically to kill people like me. Right. They had no reason to be in Syria. You know, Syria, the opposition uh, in Syria didn't have any arguments with Hezbollah back then. But they came specifically to prop up this this regime, which which otherwise, you know, without the Iranian and Russian and, and so okay, and so support. so now you don't swipe right on Hezbollah, but that doesn't mean why should you <laughs> like Israel? Okay, so here I am. It's like 2008, 2012, I think, early 2013. We start to hear. These incredible stories about Israel helping wounded Syrians and Israeli NGOs actually giving aid to Syrian refugees in Jordan. And I thought to myself, I, I didn't believe it at first. I thought, why would they? Why would mm-hmm. they? What, what's, what's in it for them? I mean, I just, it was just incomprehensible to me that a country would help people who, who, who regarded them as their, as their adversaries. Mm-hmm. And that actually taught me a very important lesson that just the way that human beings can have a moral compass, that's the same with, with some societies as well. Some societies do good, not because of any perceived benefit, but because it is just the right thing to do. And believe me, in the Middle East, that is a very novel concept. Yeah. That is a very novel, novel concept. And as more and more stories came out, I thought to myself, you know what? They're showing us a lot of goodwill. They're showing us a tremendous, Israelis are showing us a tremendous amount of goodwill. I mean... At the height of the refugee crisis in Europe, refugees that would leave Turkey and go and go to the Balkans, to Greece, they would land there. Who would they find? They would find Israel Aid and other Israeli NGOs there to help them and welcome them and to give them help in Arabic. They had Arabic speakers. I mean, can you imagine a refugee who, has, who and his family have just gotten off a boat, landed in Greece. They know nothing about Greece. They know nothing about Europe. They just want to get to Germany or Sweden. And then they find an Arabic-speaking person helping them with medical aid and, you know, just just uh, just being there. Can you imagine what that must have meant to so many refugees yeah. who landed in Europe? It's really overwhelming. I mean, for me, when I fast forward now, and now you're in Canada, so you're really living the dream now. I mean, 
I guess for better or for worse, life is good. It has a lot of painful, you know, your your journey was not what you thought it would be. But what I guess I wonder as someone who gets to live in Canada and you did make it out, when you see what's going on right now in Syria and sort of the lack of, I don't know, I feel like the world doesn't really care. Do you feel that way as a Syrian refugee looking in? Oh, I think the world cares, but I think that there's no political will to, I think there wasn't any political will to do what needed to be done. And there's even less of it uh, now. I think a lot of people care. I think a lot of people, I mean, just just look at this, the amazing rescue of the 422 White Helmet members and their and their families. Right. You know, also uh, it was in, yeah. yeah, it was initiated by Canada. The Canadians yeah. moved heaven and earth to get that done. I mean, even Donald Trump called up Benjamin Netanyahu even. and asked him as a favor, could you please, you know, help these guys get to Jordan? So when when the political will is there, great things can happen. I think people I think this is an indication that people do want to do more. But who are you up against? You're up against Russia. You're up against Iran. If you're going to go up against those two superpowers and a regional power, You've really got to go toe-to-toe with them. And who's going to pay the price? You know, yeah. nobody seems to want to pay the price. Not even the, the Arab countries that used to call themselves the friends of Syria. I mean, now you have the, the Saudis buying Russian weaponry, billions of dollars of Russian weaponry. To me, that doesn't sound like punishing Putin. That sounds like rewarding Putin. Yeah. What do you see as someone who lived there, now lives on the outside, and this war is literally going on right now? What do you think is going to happen? Well, Molly, <laughs> uh, oh, excuse gosh. my excuse me if I'm a bit cynical, but when when somebody asks me that, my answer is, why are you asking me? I'm just a Syrian. Syrians aren't the ones who make these decisions anymore. We have very little agency. Mm. You can ask the Russians, you can ask the Turks, ask the Saudis, the Iranians, you know, ask the Jordanians and Americans. They're the ones who are making the the decisions. I mean, even the Kurds at the time, they seemed to have for a time it looked like the Kurds were forging their own destiny. That obviously isn't the case anymore. Any Syrian who thinks that their side is winning or can win this war is an absolute idiot, oh an absolute God. fool. This is the first civil war in history where both sides ended up losing. This is, this is what happened. In the end, we are not masters of our own fate. You have a regime that's beholden to Iran and, and Russia and an opposition that can't do anything without the approval of their foreign backers uh, either. This is absolutely the worst case scenario that we could have ended up in as, uh, as Syrians. I want to laugh, but it's so depressing. You've just taken all the air out of this podcast. Let me ask you one other important thing. Did you, when you didn't like Israel so much, believe in things like the Mossad shark, which is basically <laughs> people believing that Mossad, which is like the CIA putting sharks in the water that are spies, shark spies. Did you buy that? Well, until, Did you believe it? No, until, Be honest. I mean, until... I don't. I don't think anybody will actually actually believe those ridiculous uh, stories. Really? I mean, there's a. It seems like people did. People, people give people some credit, you know. I, <laughs> I mean, don't it's, know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you were getting to be your cynical self, and I would read this, and people seem like, yeah, it was the massage shark that did it. <laughs> Here's the thing. Let's have a reality check. I mean, I set up a website called Thank You I'm Israel. I mean, the whole purpose behind it was the Israelis, by necessity, kept a low profile. They didn't publicize the work that they were doing, the help that they were giving Syrians. But it was an incredible effort that Israel was undertaking. And it's uh, private citizens. I mean, thousands of Syrians owe their lives to Israel because they got life-saving med- medical care. Mm-hmm. Israeli citizens have privately collected funds and actually outfitted 
hospitals and field the medical clinics inside Syria itself. I mean, I, if, if I can, but these stories weren't getting out. People didn't, weren't actually aware of them. So what I was hoping was that, okay, the Israelis, we were adversaries with the Israelis. Now they have shown us a tremendous amount of goodwill. If ever you want to resolve a conflict between two people, it has to start somewhere. So the Israelis were the ones who started. They showed us a tremendous amount of goodwill. We have to reciprocate. Okay, mm-hmm. we're not in a position, God forbid, Israelis would ever need anybody the way that Syrians need the help of the international community. God forbid. Yeah. But at least we can say thank That's you. Screwed. I, I like to say that history will record that during the refugee crisis, Israelis and Jews stepped up to the plate and they did their people proud. They helped so many refugees and they went out of their way to help so many, so many, so many Syrians. The least we could do is say thank you. Let history not record that nobody acknowledged the help that the Israelis gave to Syrians and at least said thank you. Unfortunately, though, I mean, I was I was really hoping that this would take off. That, that this, Everyone would love your website. No, not the website particularly. I mean, I, the I was, message. you know, I, I, not the website. It's just that as more and more stories came out and people became more aware through through other media of Israel's efforts, there would be a change in perception in the Arab world towards Israel. That it is not the ultimate evil. It is not the ultimate Satan. It is not the cause of all of everything that is wrong in life. That this is actually a conflict that can be resolved. Syrians and Israelis need not be adversaries. I do not believe that we need to be adversaries. I mean, the Golan Heights, that's the most simplest compared to the other uh, issues in the Middle East. The kind, the one of the Golan Heights can be resolved pretty easily, pretty straightforward, if there's goodwill on both sides. There is mm-hmm. a solution possible. I mean, there are, there are some issues between Israelis and Palestinians, and God knows how you guys are going to resolve them. I really, God doesn't I really even don't know. know. Yeah. But <laughs> the issues between Syrians and Israelis, it's just history. And I was hoping that we would get rid of this baggage of history and turn a new page. Unfortunately, what happened with the White Helmets uh, pretty much depresses me because the White Helmets, they released a statement and they didn't even acknowledge Israel's help in the mm. matter. Israel wasn't mentioned anywhere in, the, in, in their statement. They even referred to the Golan Heights as occupied Syrian Golan Heights, uh. which is very pointedly... I mean, I understand where they're coming from. I understand that they still have 3,000 people of 3,000 members of the White Helmet still in Syria. They have to work with their local communities. They have to work with Syrians who are still, you know, still still inside Syria. But imagine this, Mali. Imagine that an organization, the White Helmet, that, that endures bombing, Russian attacks, years-long Russian smear campaigns, calling them Al-Qaeda and ISIS and whatever, and they will happily endure that. They will put up with that. And yet... They find it politically untenable to acknowledge Israeli assistance. Yeah, that's, that's how bad things are in the Arab bitches. world. And it's that, yeah. and that is just a reflection on how dysfunctional the Arab world is. Yeah. So on that note, <laughs> you know, you, you say dysfunctional, and the way you were describing it, it was like a relationship where the woman's like, "Just admit it, just admit it," and the man's like, "No, it's your problem." And that's what it sounds like. And who knows where those things go? Like any relationship. There's always hope. You're doing your part. Uh, We have to wrap things up here. I hope that although you've been cynical and dark, that we do somehow still find the light. I think you do that with your website. And that we continue, despite if we get praise or not, as human beings around the world, to help each other out. That's all we can ever ask for. And just... 
you know, Mossad yep. sharks and whatever, they do their part, we do our part, and we figure shit out. So again, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy you're in Canada. Continue to thrive and be healthy. Thanks for waking up so early in the morning to do this with us still stuck here in the Middle East. Thank you to my editor, of course, Scott Kahn, who puts this all together every single time. Everyone should download this, share this. I think it's so valuable from a real perspective of someone who lived through it, survived it, and is looking at it. We should have everyone listen to what's going on about Syria, care, do something. Now I sound like a ranty, someone who cares. I care. I do care. All right. The Mideast Beast, online, on iTunes, wherever you get it. This has been another podcast of The Mideast Beast.